Oh Lord, as we come to Your Word now, we remember that Your Word is inherent, that it is sufficient, that it is inspired. It is Your very Word. And so we pray, O Lord, that You would speak to us. We pray that You would use Your Word to nourish us. That You would use Your Word to strengthen us. That You would use Your Word to conform us to the likeness of Christ. But above all, we pray that You would show us our need for Christ and that Christ would be exalted as we study Your Word. We remember that the Scriptures are written about Him. That they testify of Him. And so we pray for Him to be glorified and exalted today as we come to Your Word. O Lord, teach us. Convict us. Encourage us. Strengthen us. You know what we need. So we pray that Your Word would do Your work in us for the glory of Christ. In His name we pray. Amen. Well, if you have your Bibles, please turn to John chapter 17. We will be continuing our study in John 17, uh, probably for quite a while. Um, Like I said last week, this is kind of the Mount Everest of Scripture. Uh, One theologian after another throughout history has uh, has looked at this chapter and they have seen this as the pinnacle of Scripture. You can find just about every uh, Christian doctrine you can think of in this chapter. Uh, and not only um, implied indirectly, but often you know, stated very directly. This is a beautiful chapter. And as such, I don't want to rush us through it. I was having lunch with a pastor friend this past week, and he was talking about how John was the first book that he preached through as a pastor. And when he got to John chapter 17, he did it in three sermons. Uh, I thought, well, that is one way to to do it. But he said, it is, but I I look back now and see that I left a lot of fruit on the tree. Uh, There's so much to be gleaned from this chapter. So we'll be continuing Uh, by looking at uh, chapter 17, verse 1 again today. Um, Just one verse. So if you have your Bibles with you, please turn to John chapter 17, verse 1. You know, if there's uh, anything that I've really tried to learn as a pastor, preaching week in and week out, I've, I've tried to learn to be good with words. I've tried to become something of Uh, of a wordsmith. If you're not familiar with that term, it refers just to somebody who's just an expert at at words, not just communication, not just being comfortable speaking in front of people, but actually communicating clearly in a way that connects with people. And studies uh, have actually shown that when it comes to public speaking or, or to preaching specifically, the most effective way to be heard is to use simple words. Uh, There was a recent study that I came across this week from Princeton University. It was published in the Applied Cognitive Psychology Journal. And this study revealed that using big words instead of simple, more easily understood words actually causes people, actually causes your audience to think that you are less intelligent, which makes them less likely to listen to you and more likely to doubt what you say. And as I read that, I thought, boy, that's querulous. Just kidding. (laughs) But sometimes even simple words can be complicated. I couldn't tell you how many funny things I've seen people say in which they misuse the word literally, for example. Literally isn't a difficult word. It means it really happened as it said. There's no figures of speech. It's literal. Uh, I remember in my childhood watching professional wrestling, and one of the commentators yelled out that one of the wrestlers was, quote, literally exploding all over the ring. Uh, I can assure you he wasn't. Uh, You know, there are a lot of words that you can use there to to, uh, express emphasis, but literally is not one of them. But because words that seem simple and understandable might not be understood by everybody who's listening, 
I do pay careful attention when I'm up here. I pay attention to, to who's here, uh, to who's listening, to who's present as I preach. Because if I use a word that isn't in the very common English vernacular, I need to make sure that I define it before we go much further. Take words like justification or sanctification, for example. Now, most of you who attend here regularly probably know what those words mean because I use them fairly regularly, but at some point in the past, either I defined it for you or somebody defined it for you. But let's say that there's somebody present, you know, that that I'm not familiar with, that I haven't seen before. If I use words like justification and sanctification, uh, and especially if those words are central to the point that I'm trying to make, I'll make sure that I define those words, that I back up and I make sure that I point out that justification refers to our being declared innocent before God. It refers to our being forgiven and cleansed of our sin by God, released from the penalty of sin. And that sanctification refers to the lifelong process in which we strive to grow in Christ's likeness and in which God causes all things to grow us in Christ's likeness. Now you see what I just did. I defined those words. In our previous lesson in John, looking also at verse 1, uh, we started to look at verse 1 and we saw that it was Jesus' uh, high priestly prayer. Uh, but it was Jesus' prayer in verse 1 that He be glorified by His coming death by crucifixion. But why? Why did He want to be glorified? only so that the Father would be glorified through the glorification of the Son. And we saw that because the cross is the means ordained by God for our salvation, and because the cross was ordained for His glory, that the purpose of our life and the purpose of our salvation is that God be glorified in us and through us. He saved us not primarily for our comfort, not primarily for the benefits that we get in salvation, but primarily He saved us that He would be glorified in us. But now let me ask you that. Uh, ask you this. What does that even mean? For God to be glorified in us. What does it look like if you were to take that concept and put it into practice? See, glory isn't a big word. Uh, I think most of us could probably spell it with one eye closed and with one arm tied behind our back. And we certainly use that word a lot, especially when we're gathered for worship. We speak of it. Uh, Our songs, you know, have that word in it. Uh, We pray for Christ to have it, for Him to be glorified. But it's very important that we understand exactly what it means because if we don't know what the word glory means, then we won't understand exactly what it means for Christ to be glorified in us. How could we possibly know how to glorify Him if we don't know what glory is exactly? To further complicate things, the word glory really doesn't have any synonyms that carry the same weight in the English language. Now, if you were to to go on to thesaurus.com or if you have a thesaurus at home, uh, you you could look up the word glory and you'd find words like celebrity, greatness, majesty, and splendor. And I'd say that all those terms come close. They're, they're, They're in the ballpark. But I would actually argue that terms like greatness, majesty, and splendor are all part of God's glory. They're not synonymous with God's glory. Uh, They aren't the fullness. They don't express the fullness of God's glory. They're just part of it. They're indications of His glory, but they are indirect reflections of His glory rather than being equal to His glory. So what is the glory of God? What do we mean when we talk about the glory of God? And and what do we mean when we talk about God being glorified or Christ being glorified? Let me give you a quick definition. In a nutshell, the glory of God is the visible manifestation or expression of His attributes. The glory of God is the visible manifestation or expression of His attributes. And so with that said, the point of our sermon today, our lesson today, is that because the glory of God is the purpose of our life and our salvation, we must strive by God's grace 
to reflect His attributes in our lives. Let me say that again. Because the glory of God is the purpose of our life and of our salvation, we must strive by His grace to reflect His attributes in our lives. And so with that said, let us hear anew how Jesus begins the prayer that we refer to as His high priestly prayer. Just verse 1. We'll be looking at verse 1. We read, Jesus spoke these things, referring to the farewell discourse between chapters 13 and 16. Jesus spoke these things, and lifting up His eyes to heaven, He said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify Your Son that the Son may glorify You. Now we have seen that Jesus is now acting as our high priest here. As we did a brief overview of the 17th chapter of John in our previous lesson, we saw that the book of Leviticus uh, recorded the instructions that were given to the high priest before he presented a sacrifice for sin. Leviticus chapter 16 instructs the high priest on Yom Kippur, on the Day of Atonement, to first consecrate himself, to pray for himself, then to pray for the temple priests, and then to pray for the general assembly. And in obeying these instructions, in following this outline, Jesus first consecrates, he prays for himself in verses 1-5, to Then, instead of praying for the the temple priests, he prays for the disciples in verses 6 to 19. And then in verses 20 to 26, he prays for all who would believe as a result of the testimony of the disciples, which, of course, includes us. It includes every Christian from throughout the age who has read the Bible, who has heard the gospel, which was passed down by the disciples. One of the most encouraging things that a person can do for me, I don't know about you, but for me, is to pray for me. And to tell me that they're, they're praying for me. I mean, I can't tell you how many times I've, I've needed prayer. Surely more times than I could count in ten lifetimes. But I know that one of the most encouraging things I've experienced in ministry is just knowing that somebody is praying specifically for me. And aren't we all the same way? I mean, we tend to appreciate it greatly when people pray for us, don't we? I mean, I've, I've told unbelievers before that I was praying for them, and they were thankful. If an unbeliever can be thankful that we're praying for them, how much more should a Christian be thankful that somebody is offering up prayer on their behalf? Now, if we're grateful to know when friends or family members are praying for us, how much more beautiful is it? And how much more should we appreciate it when we see that the very Son of God Himself, the Lord Jesus Christ Himself, prayed for us in His final hour. In this hour in which He's undergoing such distress that He would even sweat drops of blood, we were on His mind. We were on His heart because He loved us as He loved the disciples to the very end. Surely this prayer, this high priestly prayer, is greater and more beautiful than any other prayer that we encounter in all of Scripture. Just as the high priest of the temple had to enter into the Holy of Holies all alone when he presented the sacrifice on the Day of Atonement, so too Jesus tells His disciples, where I'm going, you cannot come. And as Jesus consecrates and prepares Himself to make the once and for all sacrifice At this point in the text, only a few hours away at this point, Jesus prays first for Himself, saying to the Father, Father, the hour has come. Glorify Your Son. Glorify Your Son that the Son may glorify You. Now it's important that we see that the reason that Jesus desired to be glorified is in order that the Father would be glorified in Him. And of course, He would be. The Father would grant this prayer because the Father and the Son are one. They have one will. And so whatever the Son prays for, we can be sure the Father gives Him. 
James Montgomery Boyce writes of this petition. He says, quote, In understanding this petition, we are immediately confronted with a problem. For few words in the distinct biblical vocabulary are less understood than the word glory. End quote. And since glory is so central not only to the opening of this prayer, but as we'll see, it's, it's central to the entire prayer, uh, it's, it's used five times in the opening verses, but it's used throughout this chapter. And since that has a very specific application to our lives, as we saw last week, it's important that we develop a full understanding of the idea, that we understand exactly what glory means, and therefore can understand what it means to glorify God in our lives. Now, John 1.14 was actually the first place where John uses this word. There he wrote, And the Word, referring to Jesus, of course, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw His glory. Glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now, what exactly was it that they saw? Some people would say that this is a reference to the Mount of Transfiguration. And I'd say, okay, it, it very well may, but it might, might apply to more than that. And, and how did they even know when they saw His glory? And I think John's second use of this word helps us to understand. In the second chapter, uh, we, we saw Jesus turn water into wine at the wedding in Cana. And John tells us in chapter 2, verse 11, This beginning of His signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested His glory, and His disciples believed in Him. So John draws a connection for us that we shouldn't miss. There's a connection between Jesus manifesting or revealing His glory and the disciples believing in Him. The Scriptures commonly speak of God's glory in reference to things that He has done or to things that God is doing. Psalm chapter 72, Psalm 72, verses 18 and 19, for example, David writes, Blessed be the Lord God, the God of Israel, who alone works wonders. Be blessed, and blessed be His glorious name forever. And may the whole earth be filled with His glory. David tells us that God's very name is glorious. Matthew Henry notes, For it is only in His name that we can contribute anything to His glory and blessedness. God's name is a reflection, as God's glory is a reflection of who He is and what He does, what His purposes and plans are, which all flow from who He is. That's what God's glory is. It's a reflection of who He is. All that He does is glorious. But why? Because everything that He does reveals who He is. It reveals His character. It reveals what we refer to as His attributes. Everything that God does reveals who He is. And thus, everything that He does is glorious. We remember that in Exodus chapter 33, Moses asked of God, show me your glory. And what was God's response to that? He said, I myself will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim the name of the Lord before you. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show compassion on whom I will show compassion. But the next verse tells us this. It says, but he said, you cannot see my face for no man can see me and live. That's his response to Moses asking to see his glory. God could reveal his goodness to Moses, and he reveals his compassion and, and uh, his, his mercifulness, but the point of the text is to make clear to us that none of us can bear to see God in all of his glory. It would consume us. It would be far too much for us to endure. Why? Because of our total sinfulness. And we understand that His glory is too much for us to withstand in light of what we saw just a few chapters earlier. In Exodus chapter 24, verse 17, we read this. It says, And to the eyes of the sons of Israel, the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a consuming fire on the mountaintop. 
Now, you'll recall that that's where the Ten Commandments were given to Moses. It was on top of Mount Sinai. Do the Ten Commandments have any redemptive ability? Do they have the power to save us? No. What do the Ten Commandments do? They only condemn us because we've fallen short of all of them. They only have the power to condemn us and to testify against us, to testify of our worthiness of being under the wrath of God. See, part of God's glory is His holiness. And in His holiness, God can neither look at or touch what is defiled by sin. This is why Moses couldn't look upon God's glory without himself being consumed by it. Because God is a holy God and Moses is a fallen sinner. And if he were to look at anything but God's goodness, it would consume him. Psalm 19 begins by stating, the heavens are telling of or declaring in some translations the glory of God and their expanse is declaring the work of His hands. This tells us not only that the heavens declare the glory of God, but they reveal how they reveal the glory of God. How do they declare uh, God's glory? It's because they are the work of His hands. The, The stars, the heavens, it's the work of His hands. And what God does reveals who He is. Who else but an all-wise, all-powerful, all-consuming, all-sovereign God could put stars and planets and solar systems and universes all together in a cohesive, coherent way. They reveal God's glory because they reveal God's character. They reveal His attributes. They tell us things about God that can't be said of any other person or any other being. Nobody else has the power to put the stars in the sky. And for that reason, the heavens declare the glory of God. They tell us who God is. They reveal His attributes. God's glory is displayed in everything that He does. For the person who believes in Jesus Christ, His Son, that person will be glorified in his salvation, or God will be glorified in that person's salvation by showing him mercy. For the person who doesn't believe in Christ, God will be glorified in his judgment by demonstrating his justice and his holiness. Both justice and mercy are attributes of God, and both of these attributes are glorious because God himself is glorious. In fact, Scripture refers to God as the King of glory. What does that mean? When when it refers to Him as, as the King of glory, it means that God is ultimate. It means that He is ultimate and perfect in all of His attributes, all of His ways, in His love, in His wisdom, in His truthfulness, in His mercifulness, in His justice, holiness, omnipotence, omniscience, infiniteness, and so on and so forth. God is glorious in all of these things. And not only does He have all of them perfectly and ultimately, but He has them to the highest degree. So none can compare to Him. That's why we call Him the King of glory. Not only does nobody else have His attributes, but nobody has His attributes to the degree that He has them. He has no equal. He has no match when it comes to any of His characteristics or attributes. He is ultimate and He is supreme over all. None can fathom Him. None can wrap their minds around how great and glorious He truly is. So what do we mean when we talk about God's glory? We mean the revelation or the demonstration of God's character, of His attributes. An article on the website of Ligonier Ministries, which is the ministry that was founded by the late R.C. Sproul, of course, Uh, This article defines God's glory as, quote, the outstreaming of His infinite value. And when it streams out, it is seen as beautiful and great. It has both infinite quality 
and magnitude. So we may define God's glory as the beauty and greatness of His manifold perfections. End quote. And so with this established, we should understand that we are like the disciples who in Christ see the glory of God revealed fully, revealed ultimately, revealed perfectly. When Jesus quoted from Isaiah back in John chapter 12, John commented after quoting Jesus, and John said this, he said, these things Isaiah said because he saw, Isaiah saw, his glory, that is Christ's glory, and he spoke of him. So whose glory did Isaiah see? He saw Christ's glory. That vision in Isaiah 6 was a vision of Christ. And John wanted to make sure that we drew the connection between the glory that Isaiah himself saw and the person of Christ. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18, But we all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory. He goes on to explain why some people believe and others don't in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 6 and 7, where he writes, For God, who said, Light shall shine out of darkness, is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. But we have this treasure in earthen vessels, so that the surpassing greatness of the power will be of God and not from ourselves. The fullness of God's glory is seen in Christ. At the heart of all these things is the reality that the glory of God is revealed perfectly and fully in the person of Christ. The disciples saw it. And what did they do? They believed. Do you? Do you believe? But we should be careful to understand that Christ, His glory can be broken into to three distinctions. He has three distinct glories. First, He has glory because He's fully God. And God is glorious. So Christ possesses an essential glory. A glory in virtue of just who He is. Being not only fully man, but fully God. And that is a glory that He has just because He is God. Secondly, he has what theologians refer to as a personal glory. His personal glory is a glory that is uniquely his by virtue of the incarnation. He made the glory of God a a tangible thing, something that can be witnessed, something that can be seen. If you think of it this way, the the sun uh, is something that you wouldn't be very wise to look directly at uh, with the naked eye. Uh, to even try to look at the sun directly can cause irreversible and irreparable harm to our eyes. But we can still see the sun. How? Well, I mean, there are a few ways. You can, uh, one way is you can take a picture. If you take a picture of, of a sunset, for example, you, you, it's bright, but you can look at it. Uh, you can look at the sun being reflected on water as it gets lower and lower to the horizon. So Jesus is like the water that perfectly reflects God's glory in a manner that does not consume us. In Him, we're able to behold the fullness of God's glory, the fullness of God's attributes, the fullness of who God is, His character. And the third distinct glory of Christ is referred to as His mediatorial glory. Uh, this was a, a glory that Puritan Thomas Godwin uh, Goodwin defined as acquired, purchased, and merited. Uh, how did he acquire? How did he merit this glory? Uh, through the redemption of sinners as their mediator. That's why it's called mediatorial glory. First uh, Corinthians eleven seven says that a bride is the glory of her husband, and if marriage is a visual picture, a visual representation of the relationship between Christ and the church being unified, then the church is also, in a sense, the glory of Christ. That's where things start to get kind of serious for us, isn't it? But before we go there, let's consider all that Jesus is saying here in chapter 17, verse 1. He's praying 
that He, the Son, be glorified. That is, He's praying that the attributes of God would be displayed, would be, would be revealed in His death and in His resurrection. And indeed, they were. At the cross, we see two very important attributes of God put on full display for all the world to see. First, we see the justice of God. His justice, of God, uh, his justice is very closely related to His righteousness. He never does what is sinful. In fact, He, he hates sin. That's His justice. Now, in Islam, uh, Allah can simply forgive. Just choose to forgive. No sacrifice is necessary. But that's not justice. That's not justice. Justice has demands. It makes demands. It has consequences. Justice specifically makes the demand that sin have a consequence. That it be paid for. In Islam, sin doesn't necessarily have a consequence at all. But what judge can you think of? What kind of a judge would simply drop charges against a murderer simply because they chose to would you say that that's a just judge of course not we'd say that's that's merciful maybe but uh is it really fair is it really just to just drop the charges i mean that that violates our sense of justice i mean imagine that the person uh being tried had murdered one of our children Uh, No sane person could ever feel comfortable knowing that a person who who murdered a child in cold blood just got off scot-free just because the judge felt like pardoning them just for the sake of exercising his ability to pardon. God could not be just. That is, He could not be righteous and simply turn a blind eye to sin. If God was going to be reconciled to any sinners, then the just penalty for the sins of those He redeems must be paid by someone who themselves was spotless, was sinless. And thus, that person had never incurred a debt for their own sin. Who could do such a thing? We couldn't do it. I couldn't do it. You couldn't do it. We're all sinners. Who could do such a thing? Who could stand before God and claim to be without sin? Only God Himself. Only the Lord Jesus Christ. Because only God can provide what God requires. Not even our children could stand before God and claim innocence in regard to sinfulness. And the reason for this is something that we call original sin, something that we covered in today's catechism. Original sin, by the way, doesn't refer to exactly the original sin that was ever committed, although that's related. Rather, it refers to the fact that we all have a sinful origin. Uh, We all come from a fallen line. A fallen race. See, when Adam sinned against God by de- defying the, the one law that God had given him, not eating from the tree of good and evil knowledge, what happened to him? He fell. That is to say that his nature fell. But not only did he fall, but the whole nature of Adam fall, uh, fell in that moment. Which meant that the nature of his offspring also fell. After all, it's impossible for a father to pass on to his offspring a nature that he himself does not have, which meant that the whole human race fell in Adam. He was representing the whole human race in that sense. That's why David would write in Psalm 139, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. What he's saying there is that even before he breathed his first breath, but from the very moment of his conception in his mother's womb, he was a sinner by nature. He had this fallen, sinful nature that had been passed down from Adam to Adam's offspring, to their offspring, to their offspring, and so on and so forth. He had this fallen, sinful nature and was therefore guilty 
before God. God can't just turn a blind eye to sin. Job 34.12 says, Surely God will not act wickedly, and the Almighty will not pervert justice. Abram asked the rhetorical question of the impossibility of God acting unjustly. He said, Shall not the judge of all the earth deal justly? That's just a rhetorical He knew and he didn't expect God to, to answer. He didn't need an answer. He knew the answer. He knew that God would act justly. But because he knew that God was perfectly just and that he would do what is right, he couldn't understand why God would destroy Sodom and Gomorrah since his nephew Lot, who was a righteous man in God's sight, lived there. If God was going to be reconciled to sinners, the sins of those He redeems had to be atoned for. The debt had to be paid. And only Jesus, only Jesus could do that work. And thus, in Christ's crucifixion, He would demonstrate God's perfect, unfailing justice. How? By standing in the place of His people, not only as their high priest, but as their sacrifice for sin. By manifesting, by demonstrating God's justice on Calvary, He was also manifesting the attributes of holiness. That that means that God can't tolerate sin. And it was demonstrating His righteousness because God's holiness and righteousness both demand justice. These characteristics, these attributes of God were on full display as Christ was on the cross. And so we know that His, answer, uh, that his prayer was answered in the affirmative in that sense. And yet the cross also demonstrates more of God's attributes. Another one very clearly. One which seems to be perhaps incompatible with His justice. It demonstrated His mercifulness. As sinners whose only hope is that God would grant us mercy. This attribute should be one of our favorites. It should be exceedingly beautiful to us when we consider it. And it's, it's indeed precious to us because without it, we are left with the guilt of sin on our hands. And we have no way to cleanse it ourselves. Deuteronomy 4.31 says this, The Lord your God is a compassionate God. He will not fail you, nor destroy you, nor forget the covenant with your fathers which He swore to them. Notice that God was going to show mercy to them because of the covenant that He had already made with their forefathers. Similarly, Lamentations chapter 3, verses 22 and 23 says, The Lord's loving kindnesses indeed never cease, for His compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Now, what we should see there is that the word loving kindness, or loving kindnesses, is the Hebrew word hesed, which refers to, again, God's faithfulness to His covenant. It's a covenant love. Uh, The same kind of love that was seen and mercy that was seen in Deuteronomy 4.31. So Jesus would be glorified on Calvary because it's one place where sinners can see and receive God's merciful pardon. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3-5 to says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. The only reason... The only reason that we can have hope before God, the reason that He's given us an imperishable and undefiled inheritance is because of His unfathomable, just immense mercy. We can't claim to deserve mercy. Nobody is ever worthy of mercy. All of us have sinned, and mercy is never owed. It's never obligatory. We see the the free-flowing love and mercy of God on Calvary, but we also see His justice. We love the 
the free and abundant restoring mercy of God, don't we? We love to sing about it. There are scores of books written about it. We like to, to think about it as well we should. It should strengthen our devotion to Christ just as surely as it should grow and sweeten our love for Him when we think about His mercy. That Christ, our high and heavenly priest, would not only reveal God's perfect and unfailing justice on the cross, but that He would also reveal the incredible mercy of God. Just as justice flows out of God's holiness and from God's righteousness, God's mercy flows from His love and His faithfulness. So what covenant was Jesus being faithful to on the cross? That's where we talk about something that happened in eternity past. This is where our minds start to get a little bit, well, we can't grasp this. But there was an eternal covenant of redemption established between the Father and the Son in eternity past. We learn about it in Hebrews. So it was flowing from His love and His faithfulness to that covenant. Now we know then that Christ's prayer here in chapter 17, verse 1, that He be glorified, was answered. He would certainly be glorified in a very unique, a very a beautiful way, and yet a, a barbaric way, a, a brutal manner. But to what end? For what purpose? For the glory of the Father. Christ and the Father are one. All the attributes that the Father has, the Son also has. And this brings us to yet another problem with the idea that the Son is in eternity subordinate to the Father. All that God does is in accordance with His perfect nature. And thus, if the Son is eternally subordinate to the Father, then part of His nature is to be subordinate. While it's not in the Father's nature to be subordinate to anyone, And so friends, we have to affirm along with 2,000 years of orthodox theologians that the Father and the Son have one essence. They have one will. They are one in essence. They are one in nature and substance. And thus they share in all of the same attributes. God is subordinate to no one. And Jesus is fully God. He's one with the Father. Now, Let me bring you full circle. The central point I focused on in our first sermon on this first verse of John 17 was that the purpose of the cross was the glory of God. And that since the cross is the means God chose to bring salvation to His people, our salvation is also all about God's glory. Now, we've developed an understanding, I hope, of what we mean when we talk about or when we refer to God's glory. It's the revelation, the the demonstration of His attributes, of, of who He is as revealed in His attributes. And if your salvation is above anything and everything else, including the benefits that we receive in salvation, if your salvation is primarily about God's glory, and it is, then what should we be doing with our lives? What should be happening in our lives? What should the world around us see when they look at our lives? They should be seeing the attributes of God on display in our lives and in our person. After all, are we not His worksmanship? Are we not new creations in Christ? Are we not the work of His hand? We are. If God's glory is revealed in everything that He does, and if we are His worksmanship, then there is no other conclusion. Your life should be reflecting various attributes of God. Now, some of them, they your life can't reflect. For, the, for example, the fact that God is infinite. There's no way for a finite creature to reflect what is infinite. But there are attributes that can be demonstrated in our lives. And Paul actually raises the bar for us when he writes, do all for the glory of God. In 1 Corinthians 
What higher calling could there possibly be than that? To demonstrate His character. To put His attributes on display in our lives for all the world to see. This is the purpose of our existence that we're talking about. This is the reason God saved us. What's the chief end of man again? To glorify God and enjoy Him forever. But we don't need to wait until heaven to do that. We can do that now. And to the degree that we embody, to the degree that we reflect the character, the attributes of Christ, we glorify Him and we partake of His glory, even, in a sense. Now that might sound impossible. That's hard to imagine. It's one of those things that kind of sounds too good to be true, so we want to be careful. But what we'll see as we go through this high priestly prayer in John chapter 7 is that it is true. Jesus will say in verse 22, The glory which you, the Father, have given me, the Son, I have given to them. Now that's found again in verse 22. That's not the section about just the disciples. That's talking about the whole church. The glory which you have given me, I have given them. Let that sink in for just a moment. I mean, it's impossible for our minds to fully grasp this, but Jesus is saying that the glory that He earned as our substitute, the glory that He earned as our mediator, He has given to them. That them is us. It's the whole church. It's everyone who will believe on Jesus Christ. Because the glory of God is the purpose of our life, because the glory of God is the purpose of our salvation, therefore we must strive by His grace to reflect His character, to reflect His attributes in our lives. What else does it mean to grow in Christ's likeness? but to grow in His character. You're not going to look like Him physically, but the characteristics of God that are revealed in Christ should be seen to some degree in our lives. Do you realize that when you turn away from sin, when you forsake sin, you are demonstrating His holy character? You're specifically demonstrating holiness, but you're also demonstrating His omnipotence because... You're demonstrating that you've been raised from death to life. And who can do that but an all-powerful God? If you are going to war with your sin, if you are putting to death the deeds of the flesh, you're showing His holiness. You're showing His omnipotence. Because the natural man, the man who is dead in his sins and transgressions, does not and cannot do this. Only a holy and omnipotent God can. When we choose to love our enemies, God is glorified because God loves His enemies. That's the only reason Christ freely chose to take on flesh, walk this earth fully God, fully man, to live a perfect life in order to reconcile His enemies to Himself. Romans chapter 5, 8 says God demonstrates His own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Think about what Psalm 41 said as we saw last week. That blessed is the man who considers the helpless. When we choose to consider the helpless, whether that's feeding the hungry, whether that's clothing the poor, whatever it might be, God is again glorified because we reflect God's mercy and compassion. If God has helped you, you should be eager to help others because God only helps one kind of person. You know what kind of person that is? A helpless person. If God has helped you, it's because you are helpless. So you should be eager to reflect that characteristic of God in your lives. But our chief end is not only to glorify God. It's also to enjoy Him forever. To enjoy Him forever. And the truth of the matter is that you will enjoy Him as you glorify Him, as you demonstrate His work in you and reflect 
His character. You will find wells of joy that never run dry in glorifying Him. Friends, show the world who God is. Show the world who Jesus is. Let us live not for our own fame, not for our glory, but for the glory of the God who loved us so much that He provided what only He could provide. His perfect Son, the perfect sacrifice, the sinless sacrifice that He required in Christ Jesus our Lord. No, that's not always the easiest thing to do. I totally get it. The world will hate us as we reflect Jesus' character because they hated Jesus. If we're reflecting Jesus' character and they hated Jesus' character, they're going to hate us. I, I get it. But it's our calling. It's our purpose in life. And it is the highest calling that's ever been given to man. And it's yours. It's yours. It's been given to you. By God's grace, friends, we will do just that. By His grace. By His grace, we'll be uplifted. By His grace, we'll be sustained as we walk in obedience to Him. And as we point to Jesus Christ as the one and only way in which a person can be reconciled to God. By believing in Him and Him alone. So may Christ be glorified. May His character be seen in all that you do. For He alone is worthy of our love. He alone is worthy of our devotion. He alone is worthy of our faith and service. And this is the purpose of your life and your salvation. Let's pray. Our most gracious Heavenly Father, thank You for Your mercy. Thank You for demonstrating Your graciousness and Your mercy in Christ. In sending Him to live the life that we could not live and to die the death that we should have died. We thank You that You took our sin and You cast it upon Christ and He took it away from us. He cleansed us. We thank You, Lord, that He took our place bearing Your wrath. And so, Lord, teach us to imitate Him. Teach us to walk as He walked. Teach us to show His glorious nature in our lives. Use any means necessary, Lord. Use every circumstance in our lives to conform us to His image. And Your Word assures us that even as we ask this, that's exactly what You have been doing since the moment You saved us. And so teach us, O Lord. Teach us to be like Your Son, Jesus we pray that You would give us opportunities not only to reveal His glorious character, but to reveal Your glorious Gospel in this dark, dark culture. And we ask these things for the glory of Christ. Amen.